sidewalk, and so he quickly picks everything up, puts it back in his lunch bag, but he missed a little piece of bologna that had fallen onto the sidewalk. So the fly saw this and was very hungry, as flies are, and so he flew down and he started to eat that bologna. In fact, he ate so much that the fat fly could not freely fly anymore. And so he waddled across the sidewalk and across the lawn and up the wheel of the lawnmower, back up onto the handle of that lawnmower. And then he noticed that there was still some bologna left over there on the sidewalk. And he was, of course, really stuffed, but the bologna sure did look really good. Finally, the temptation got the best of him. He jumped off the handle of the lawnmower to fly over and eat some more bologna. The problem was he was so full, he was too full to fly, and he went splat, killing him instantly. The moral of the story is don't fly off the handle when you're full of baloney. <laughs> I want to talk today, among other things, about anger, about dealing with anger and things that come along with it. Have you ever been told that to do something that you cannot do that's a really frustrating thing when you're told to do something that you're really unable to do. Uh, this, for in, one example, Jerry Ellingson, our friend, uh, flies a plane. I have flown with him on numerous occasions, and uh, I, I enjoy it. I don't always put all my weight down. I hold it up just a little bit to help him, but uh, we've flown with him on several occasions. He's a good pilot. But what if one day we got down on the ground and he tossed me the keys if airplanes have keys, I don't even know, but if they do, toss me the keys and say, now you take it up and fly it around for a little bit. There's no way I could. I wouldn't have the first idea of how to take it up into the air. What if the Bible told us to do something we could not do? Look at your text. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 17. Matthew 5, verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law. Or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments shall, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, or the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said of them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. I'm going to preach this morning for a few minutes on murderers in the church. Father, we're grateful to you for this time. I pray now you let there be no distractions, but that your word would come through clear. Help each one of us to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is preaching, and it's interesting what he says <coughs> in our text. In these six verses, Jesus tells you three things. He says, first of all, here's what you must do. Here's how you should live. Secondly, he says, you can't do it. 
He'll never do it. And then thirdly, he says, but in and through me, you can. If you review the verses, here's what you must do. That's verses 21 and 22. You'll never do it. That's actually verses 18 through 20. And then here's how in and through me, you can. That's verse 17. Now, at its core, that's the theme of the Bible, these three things. You must do it. You can't do it. Through Jesus, you can. Take salvation, for example. That's how we get saved. Without, to, to go to heaven, you must be saved. You cannot save yourself. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, who is Lord. So we, we understand that this is the structure of the Bible. So first of all, let's take a look at verses 21 and 22. And here is what you must do. Here Jesus is telling us how we, his followers, <coughs> ought to be living. He uses one of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number six, thou shalt not kill. Uh, it is a prohibition against murder. We're not supposed to kill another human being committing murder. Now, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said of them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But immediately after he says that, which everyone understood, that's one of the Ten Commandments, they all got it, he adds the next part. Whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whosoever shall say, thou fool, <coughs> shall be in danger of hellfire. He's saying here it's not enough just to abstain from harming. Bad temper, a bad tongue, will also bring judgment. Maybe not always from men, but certainly from God. So the three things that Jesus lists also violate the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. He says you not just violate the sixth commandment. If you kill somebody, wait now for it. You violate the sixth commandment when you're angry at somebody. This is pretty hardcore for us to realize. He says you violate the sixth commandment if you call them a fool. Now, you might say, wait a minute, preacher. Isn't God often angry with people? Didn't Jesus get angry at the money changers in the temple? And how about calling somebody a fool? Didn't all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets and preachers all the time call people fools? What's going on then? Does Jesus call Pharisees fools? Yes, he does in Matthew chapter 23. You, do we have other figures in the Bible who do the same? Yes. So what's he talking about here? Jesus is using three degrees of hatred to expose, uh, that expose a person to judgment in violation of the sixth commandment. First, he lists anger without a cause. To harbor inward resentment toward another person. Now, I read that, and especially when it talks about anger without a cause, I look at that as undue anger. Or anger over really silly and dumb things. Probably every one of us in here have been, had people angry at us for really dumb things. Just things that are not, shouldn't be uh, recipients of anger. People have even left this church because it's not a nice place or they don't care about me there. And when I know the love that I have in my heart for people, and I know that you folks are nice people. So I know that it's an undue anger often. Anger without a cause. Jesus said that this puts one in danger of the judgment. This is a reference 
uh, to the lower court, a tribunal of seven men in several cities there in Palestine. The second degree of hatred is demonstrated by an outward expression of dislike. One who says, Raka, conveys the idea of scorn, of disdain, of contempt. Raka, it means empty, senseless, empty-headed man. By <coughs> Raka says to another, you are nothing. You are empty. You are worthless. Jesus says that the man who allows his emotions to control him is in danger of the council. This is in reference to the Supreme Court, the 71 members of the Sanhedrin. The third degree of hatred is even more forceful. It's an expression of anger and disgust. To say, thou fool, is to call a man godless, to call him a reprobate or a rebel, it's a serious charge. The word translated fool here is moros. You can obviously gather from that what word we get from it, moron, fool, worthless, rebel. Those are the meanings of that word. Now, there's a connection with this statement and the life of Moses I don't want you to miss here. He got angry. In Psalm 106, verse 3, the Bible says, because they provoked his spirit, so he spake unadvisedly with his lips. He was <coughs> unwise with his words. Anybody else ever been there? Yes. Being unwise with our words. He used an equivalent word to moras. In Hebrew, it's mora. And uh, Numbers 20.10, when he says, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? You remember the story? He got angry, he hit the rock, and that little action caused, cost him the promised land. He was not allowed to go to the promised land after he did that. So this is serious business, this idea of calling a person a fool. Now, sure, Jesus did get angry, but it was a godly anger. It was a Jesus anger that was rooted in love. His anger arose out of a love for God, a love for truth, and a love for people. By the way, Jesus got angry on behalf of how people treated his father and his father's house. Moses, back to him, after he received the Ten Commandments. I want to take you to another anger moment in Moses' life. Moses was up on the mountain, and he was up there for 40 days, and he was receiving the Ten Commandments. And while he was up there, the children of Israel got antsy, and they gathered all their gold and their jewelry, and they put it together, and, <coughs> and they fashioned a golden calf in which they were worshiping. And so, as they were starting to worship Moses and Joshua coming down off the mountain, and Joshua at first thought he heard the sounds of war when it was actually just an ACDC concert going on with a bunch of central worship going on, and they were worshiping this idol. And Moses, do you remember this story? Moses got so angry at what they were doing. This is what the Bible says. His anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hand and break them beneath the mount. Now, wait a second here. They, they had flat tablets of stone. God himself wrote on those tablets of stone the commandments. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty valuable commodity right there. If those stones were for sale at bargains on Maine, there would be a big old price on them. Amen? They're worth something. Moses got so angry, he throws them down, and they break into 100 pieces. Let me ask you a question. Moses ever get in trouble for that? 
You ever get in trouble with God for that? No. In fact, in Exodus 34, 1, God says, get me two more rocks, I'll inscribe them again. See, most examples in the Bible, when we see of righteous anger, righteous anger, by the way, is anger that we feel when we witness an offense against God or his word. Our problem is not we get angry at what happens against God and his word. Listen to me now. Our anger comes when we're offended, when something happens against me. Our anger then is not a, and we like to look at that verse, be angry and sin not. That's not talking about personal offenses. That's not talking about, by the way, it's really hard for us to be angry and sin not. Jesus did it, but it's hard for us because we're not, of course, on the same level of him. But you look at what happened when Jesus Christ was spat upon, when he was mocked and beaten. How did he respond then? Did he curse them? Did he scream at them like we would? No, he didn't. What he said was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Whenever there was an offense against himself, he always absorbed it. He never got angry at that. That's what we do, though. Our anger, you see, is not like the anger of our Savior. Our anger is filled with raka, a term of reproach. It's filled with contempt because it's not based on love. Our anger most of the time is based on pride. It's based on our ego. It's based on ourselves, and it's a personal offense. Anger, someone said, is only one letter short of danger, and so it is. There's danger in clinging to your anger. When you feel angry, it becomes resentment, and uh, resentment over time becomes bitterness, and any joy that a angry person might feel is obliterated by that ugly smear of resentment that lives within their breast. It ruins bitterness that, that they feel about a person or bitterness that they feel about a past. Resentment is the kind of anger that Jesus says, hey, it's murder. That's what it is. It's murder. And that's a serious business. Resentment is the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about here. If you think of somebody right now and you enjoy thoughts of their humiliation or you, uh, you, you just uh, fantasize about their suffering, if you can enjoy a scenario in your mind of that person being injured or being in sorrow, you have an anger that is filled with contempt and disdain, and that is a serious, serious matter. There's a reason that Jesus linked this type of anger, I believe, to murder. He connects it with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Uh, now, it, first of all, it leads to actual murder. Now, true, this is not this is a little more rare. Not everybody that gets angry becomes a murderer, but it does lead to actual murder. Anger is the seedbed for murder and harm. But more likely, the folks that I'm talking to this morning in this building and on uh, that are listening in, more than likely, you're killing yourself rather than someone else. Some of the health problems that have been linked to anger, headache, digestion problems, insomnia, anxiety, depression, high blood pressure, even heart attack and strokes have been linked to anger. Frederick Buchner said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue over the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you're giving back. 
In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that when you are wolfing down, or what you are wolfing down, is yourself. The skeleton at that feast is you. Anger is a serious business, and Jesus links it to murder. So we learn here, we are to reject murder. That's what you're supposed to do. And then we see, oh, by the way, you can't do it. What, say, what preacher? Look at this, what it says. Nobody can live like this. Jesus drives this home in verses 18 through 20. Jesus said, when it comes to the law and the prophets, that, now when the Bible talks about the law and the prophets, it's like the New Testament version of what we say, the Bible. Okay, when it, That's what they had. That was the Bible of their time. So <clears throat> when it comes to the Bible, verse 19, whosoever therefore shall break one of the, these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. For whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever shall break one of these least commandments. There's a verse, I believe, in James that says if we break one law, we're guilty of the whole law. I think of the prayer the lady was praying. She said, now, Lord, so far today, I have not broken one of the Ten Commandments. I haven't gotten angry. I haven't got resentful. I haven't had a bad thought. I haven't had anything that I've done wrong. But, Lord, I'm about ready to get out of bed, and I need your help from now on out. That's how it is for us, isn't it? Uh, how long are we going to go without breaking the commandments? And we break one, we break them all. We're talking a pretty high expectation here. Then, then he goes on. Now, this is not a statement that shocks us like it would shock the listeners of that day. This would have been <gasps> for them. Listen to what it says. Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Exceed? Now, the listeners would have been shocked because the, the, the Pharisees, they were the epitome of morality and righteousness in that day. Everything they did, everything they said, everything they ate, every place they went, it was all uh, compliant to hundreds of rules that they would listen to. And anyone that was hearing Jesus would say, how in the world do you expect us to be as righteous as they are and then has to exceed that? Jesus, in verses 21 through 22, really reveals to us that no one can have the type of inner life he's talking about. See, the law of God does not just demand external compliance. It demands inner motives. In other words, it doesn't only say it's wrong for you to do such and such. It is also wrong for you to have the attitudes of the heart that lead to such and such. Jesus expands the commandments. He's going to demonstrate this, and he does so throughout the rest of the chapter with thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness. Those are the three commands that he deals with in this chapter. We hear that, and what he's talking about are unreal expectations. Adultery includes lust now? Really? Does, I mean, is anybody innocent after that? And murder now includes hatred and anger? In verse 44, we're told we're supposed to love our, not only our neighbors, which we understood. Hey, yes, we love our neighbors. Now Jesus said, I say, to love your enemies. Well, have you ever tried to love an enemy? That's not an easy request. We hear these things and we realize, you know, <laughs> I don't have the power to do those things. I can never lust or I'm guilty of adultery. I can never get angry or I'm guilty of murder. And then I'm supposed to love my enemies on top of that? This is some high expectations. 
That's what's expected. Verse 17, referring to the law and the prophets. By the way, when you go to the Bible, you don't just get rules. You get examples. You see Abraham and Moses and Joseph and David. You see all these examples of these amazing people and, uh, the, the, who, with seemingly unattainable obedience and faithfulness. I remind you of Abraham, Genesis 22, who laid his only son on the altar ready to slaughter him for God. I mean, any of us have that type of commitment to the Lord? You see, we look at these stories, and I don't know about you, but I see some of those stories in the Old Testament, and they're not inspiring to me. They're crushing. I can't attain to that. I mean, there's no way I could be, be that spiritual as David was and as, as Abraham was in Moses. So let's recap. Jesus lays out the expectations of how, mu uh, how you must live. I'm sorry. Secondly, he demonstrates you'll never live like that. You can't do it. Here's what you must do. And by the way, you can't do it. But here's the good news. In and through Jesus Christ, you can. Now look at verse number 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus said, I'm not coming to abolish the law. I still want you to obey the law. Now, we have to understand, we're not going to go into the whole idea with the law, but just suffice it to say, the law is our schoolmaster. The law is our mirror. The law shows us that we are unable to save ourselves because we can't obey the whole law. That does not mean that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, Jesus came and paid our price, that we throw the law out, we don't have to worry about it anymore. We still, how do you make somebody happy? Your wife or your husband, for example. You find out the things that they like, and you do those things. There's a great book, if you haven't read it as a couple, you should. I would encourage you to read it together as a couple called The, the Five Love Languages. And I had to learn this in marriage. That love language, the, the, that husbands and wives sometimes they suffer conflict because not because they don't love one another, but they're not speaking each other's language. So she might have these expectations, and one of the love languages is touch, and one of the love languages is gifts. And and uh, I, I, for example, doesn't bother me at all if I never get gifts. I don't. If I want something, I'll buy it myself. You know, I just don't. Doesn't speak highly. My wife loves gifts. Likes when. You think of her and buy her things and get her stuff. And so that's how I've had to learn that's her love language. And then different people have different love languages. And so we find out what pleases the one we love, and that's what we start doing to show our love to them. What pleases God? Well, that's found in the law. The law is really a delineation of God's character. It's who he is. And so he lays this out. And Jesus said, I, by the way, we don't keep the law to earn God's favor. We keep the law to please the one we love. That's the difference between us and religion. Jesus loves you too much to just say, oh, forget about the law. He wants you to become more and more like his father. And the law of God is that nature of God. Give me an example. The Bible says we ought to forgive. Why? Because he forgives. We ought to forgive. Uh, Ephesians 4.32, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You were made to image God. You were made, and Jesus, uh, Romans 8, 28 and 29, even talks about how God brings things into your life to form you and conform you into the image of his Son. We are made to reflect God in our life. So if the Bible says God forgives, and you don't forgive, 
what are you really doing? You're violating your very design. And don't miss this, friend. There's going to be a breakdown. You have a car, most of you, I'm sure. I have a car. In the design of the car, they tell you to change the oil. It used to be every 3,000 miles. Now it's 5,000 for some, even 10,000 for others. But at a certain time, you're supposed to change the oil. If you don't change the oil in your car, there will be a breakdown because you're violating its design. If you eat only fatty foods, the good stuff, like bacon, processed food, and all the stuff that tastes really good, that's really bad for you. If you only eat that, never eat anything good, you're probably going to have a heart attack. Why? Because it's violating the design. Your body is designed a certain way. By the way, you notice I use the word designed. It's by a maker, not by an accident. Okay? If you think your relatives hung by a tree by their tail, that might be saying something about your relatives. Mine did not. Amen? Mine were created. Hallelujah. Because we're, So when a physician or a mechanic tells you to do this or that, it's not about just, oh, they're just trying to lay a bunch of rules on me. No, no. What they're trying to do is if you don't honor the design, there's going to be a breakdown. And so if you fail to forgive, it's not just like you're breaking a rule. If you're failing to be like God, then what you're doing is failing to be what you were made to be, and there will be breakdowns. You're going to, if you allow yourself to be filled with bitterness and hatred and resentment, there'll be a breakdown in your body. There'll be breakdowns in your family. There'll be breakdowns in your church. And yes, if we allow enough people, there'll be breakdowns in our society. And my, oh my, aren't we seeing the results of that? Hatred, people spewing hatred out all over. Now, now here's where it gets good. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Now, how do you fulfill a law? Think about the laws that we listen to every day. How do we fulfill a law? There's really two ways that you can fulfill a law. Brookings has a law that you can't drive more than 35 miles an hour up 22nd Street or Avenue. Okay, we all know that law if you've driven on that. And so, most of the time, I obey that law. But there was one day I was in a hurry. You know what? That's incriminating. One day my wife was in a hurry. <laughs> okay, it was me. You know the rest of the story. I got a nice note from a nice man in a nice uniform. And that's the second way. The first way you fulfill the law is you obey the law. You don't drive over 35 miles an hour. That's how you fulfill that law. Or if you don't obey the law, and you get a nice letter from the nice man in the nice uniform, then you have to pay the ticket for that. Either way, you have fulfilled the law. You either obey the law or you pay the penalty, but either way, uh, you have fulfilled the law. There's no warrant out for my arrest today, at least not for that incident. Amen. No incident. I'm just kidding. By the way, do I need to tell you which one's more rewarding? Obeying the law, paying the penalty, a lot better to obey the law. It's just easier that way. But either way, friend, the law has no more claim on you. doesn't have any claim on me because I wrote the check out. I can't stand to pay a ticket. And I sent the check off with a tract. <laughs> uh, 
try to do my best. Maybe something good will come out of it. And uh, I fulfilled that law. No claim on me anymore. This brings us to Jesus. The law of God is a life of love, justice, integrity. Jesus Christ comes to earth, and in our place, he fulfills it twice. He fulfills it by obeying. He's that perfect Savior. He's the perfect one. He is without sin in every area. He has no sin nature. He obeys the law, therefore fulfilling it by obeying every aspect of that law. Not only does he obey the rules, he fulfills all the Old Testament examples. Uh, Abraham, Moses, and Joseph, and David, they were great examples, but they were flawed. But Jesus is the ultimate Abraham. Jesus is the ultimate Joseph, the ultimate faithful one. He's the ultimate Moses, the ultimate David, the ultimate king. And he doesn't just fulfill the law by obeying it. On top of fulfilling that law by obeying it, he goes ahead and pays the penalty as well. We who are sinners... We are not able to earn our way to heaven because of the sin that we are born with, and yet he pays the penalty so that one day we can go. Praise the Lord. Isaiah 59, 2, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. We had to have someone to pay the penalty on our behalf. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Through grace... He creates a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. And in salvation, that righteousness is imputed to us. Not only that, it's inward. You see, the Pharisees, they were called whited sepulchers. <coughs> whited sepulchers, those are tombs. They were usually painted white or whitened a month before the Passover so that people might avoid them and not get in contact with a dead body. So that would save them from ritual uncleanness. Uh, because of un maybe they wouldn't mean to touch, but they didn't know it was there. So this would just help them steer clear of these tombs, a place of death. When someone called you a whited sepulcher, which Jesus did the Pharisees, what it was telling them that the inside does not match the outside. Well, it means that you are a hypocrite. The idea is that you are two-faced. And some people are so two-faced they can open an iPhone up simultaneously, two of them, you know. Facial recognition people, follow me along, okay? Uh, we have that, that uh, hypocrisy that Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of. On the outside, they were doing all the good things. Inside, they were filled with pride, with vengeance, with hatred, with bigotry. Bright on the outside, dead bones on the inside. All through the Bible, the Pharisees sneered at people. They shunned sinners. They talked about Jesus who made time for sinners and talked to sinners that can't believe he's a wine-bibber. He spends time with the low class. Not us. We're holy. Knows us so far up in the air. If it rained, they'd have drowned. But Jesus said, your righteousness is going to surpass their righteousness. Now, we need to take a lesson from Jesus' directive here in our text. Uh, never treat anybody as a nobody. Never allow yourself to become contemptuous of somebody because of their class or who they are. Never allow yourself to be filled with hatred toward anyone. It's like murder. Jesus said, and it's a serious business. There's one other verse I want to show you in closing. Philippians 2.7. The Bible says, But he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. 
please don't miss this. Jesus Christ, though he had the glory, though he was equal with the Father, all majesty, the Bible says he made himself of no reputation. He made himself nothing. He made himself nobody. He emptied himself. He, you could say he made himself raka for you and for me so that you and I, who should be a nobody forever, will have a name that lives for eternity. We will live with Jesus in the presence of God forever. Hallelujah, because he paid the penalty. When you scroll then today or tomorrow or this week, you scroll Facebook and you see the face of that person that wronged you. When you're walking through the store and you see them across the way or you hear their name mentioned in conversation and that familiar feeling rises up in you, that contempt, that hatred, stop a minute and say, wait a second here, Jesus Christ, the ultimate somebody, he became a nobody so that I, a real nobody, can be treated like somebody for the rest of eternity. Now, how in the world can a person like me who has received that kind of grace fail to give it to someone else? Let the knowledge of what Jesus Christ did for you make you do right by others. Hatred, contentment, resentment, in light of all that God's done for us. No wonder Jesus likens it to murder. What right do we have to hate? What right do we have to have anger at other people who do us wrong when God has forgiven us of so much? Murder, he says. We should never under any circumstances, have murderers in the church. Amen? Amen. Let's have your head bowed, every eye closed. It's a wonderful passage we can learn much from. <coughs> I don't know exactly where God spoke to you in it or on this passage, but I encourage you to reply today to that. It doesn't mean anything special when you come up to the altar, but what it does is you're taking a step. And whenever we take a step, it becomes easier to take another one. A step towards changing, a step towards improving our lives for the Lord. Maybe you're in here today and you, you've been dealing with that anger, that bitterness, that hatred. And you know it's killing you. It may be called murder because of what it does to you. Give it to the Lord today. As she begins to play, would you stand along with me, heads bowed, eyes closed. I don't know what the Lord's given or talk to you about today, but would you respond? Oh, it's not worth it going through life full of anger, full of resentment. Sometimes we just have to do what the Bible says, cast your burdens on him, for he careth for you. Some have come, there's, no, there's still room for you, and we're not going to rush this.
you so much for being here this morning. You look up this way. We appreciate you for coming by our church. If you're visiting with us today, we're grateful to have you as always and, and uh, certainly hope that you got a blessing from your time here. Uh, Lord's good, isn't he? And we need to remember that on a regular basis. It helps me uh, when I regularly review what God has done for me uh, to help me treat others the way they ought to be treated. Amen. So let us do that as we go forward. Coming back this evening at 6 o'clock, we'll have... Uh, we'll have uh, discipleship, and then at 7, Brother Sam Martin will be preaching to us this evening. So looking forward to having him come, and he's going to talk about some uh, reporting of his ministry and some uh, new opportunities as well. So you come and be here for that if you would. So let's be dismissed in a word of prayer, and we'll come back this evening. Hope to see you again. Pastor Forsberg, would you dismiss us, please?